Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priests picked up the coins and said, It is against the law to put this into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. This is the word of the Lord. Well, brothers and sisters, this is the second of uh, three talks this week from uh, Matthew's Gospel uh, leading up to uh, Jesus' uh, crucifixion. So let's uh, pray. Lord our God, your word is light and life. Shine its light in our heart, we pray, so that we may live for the glory of Jesus. Amen. No one likes a traitor. And I guess we know that of the one person who we won't meet in heaven, at least, it's Judas. Over the years, I've met many people who have been called by different biblical names. You know, almost all the minor prophets I've met at some point or other. Um, and there are, there are three boys, I suppose now, uh, called Boaz through my influence, because I think he's a great name of a godly person in the Old Testament. But I don't think I've ever met a Judas. I've met a Jude and a Judah, but no Judas, uh, a traitor. Woe uh, to the one by whom I am betrayed. It would be better for that man not to have been born. And Judas is the traitor to beat all traitors. I mean, we don't like traitors. You see it when a football team runs onto the ground and they've got a player who's used to be in the team of the opposition on that day and everyone boos them for about 10 years, uh, it seems to me. We don't like traitors, whether it's on the footy field or Philby or in the schoolyard or wherever it might be. But Judas, the traitor to beat all traitors, is remembered every time, virtually, we celebrate the Lord's Supper, on the night he was betrayed. And as a result of that betrayal, of course, Jesus is on trial. We saw some of that yesterday and condemned. So early in the morning after that late night during the night trial that may probably have been slightly illegal, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. And so they bound him and led him away and handed him over to Pilate, 
the governor because only the Romans could bring about capital punishment in those days. And you would have thought that Judas might be pleased about this. After all, he's betrayed Jesus, and uh, it's in his interest, surely, that Jesus is found guilty. That is, it would sort of validate the betrayal, if you understand what I mean. Jesus would be seen to be the imposter and offender, and Judas perhaps a sort of hero for betraying him, showing that Judas did what is right. It's interesting, too, that if anyone could find dirt on Jesus, you'd think that Judas would be a prime candidate. Remember yesterday we saw that the chief priests and the elders in this part of this trial were trying to find uh, false witnesses. But Judas didn't come forward. I mean, he may not have been in the courtyard, but he's certainly close enough to know what's going on, it seems. But he didn't come forward. He was one of the chosen 12. He's heard Jesus' teaching. He's been with him for one, two, three years, whatever it is. He's seen the miracles. He's been with Jesus in public and private. He's been partly on an inner circle, perhaps, as the treasurer of the group. So surely he's got something that he could have said by way of the prosecution of Jesus. But nothing at all. Because I guess Judas knew that Jesus is innocent of any charge, even the false ones that are alleged in that trial during the night. And as Jesus stood condemned, Judas saw some extent of the full horror, I guess, of his action. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. To a degree, that takes a bit of courage. And after all, we've seen a trial that's really already predetermined outcome, looking for false witnesses. It's not like Judas is going to go and change their minds. So it takes a little bit of courage, I think, for him to have expressed that uh, error to expose his own sin, really, and duplicity, implying his own greed as well. But the leader's response, they don't care for that. They don't care for innocence. That shouldn't surprise us from what we saw yesterday. They're on about getting rid of this Jesus. They've been looking for false witnesses. They found them eventually. So they're not worried about what is right in this trial at all. They're not worried about innocence or the innocence of Jesus. And so there's an irony here as Judas actually expresses the truth. The person you don't expect the truth, the betrayer, is the one who says, I've betrayed innocent blood. He's the one who says Jesus is, in fact, innocent. Well, they're not interested in that. What's it to do with us? Your problem. Go away. Get out of our hair is the sort of feeling of that. And so Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Strong language. It's not just sort of throw it. It's the element of hurled it. I guess uh, an element of disgust and self-disgust as he hurls this money into the temple. Uh, 30 pieces of silver. Uh, His own anger, sense of failure. 
Proverbs reminds us that treasures gained by wickedness do not profit. And here we see that lived out, if you like. And he went away and hanged himself. Good riddance to Judas, I suppose, we might think. He dies accursed as one who a hang on a tree would be. My final year as a full-time student here in 1989, one of my fellow students, she was in our, what I think we call pastoral groups. So the students with one faculty usually would meet every, I don't know, week or fortnight and uh, encourage each other over lunch and pray. Uh, so in the group that I was co-leading, she was a member of that. And in the middle of the year, she suicided. She threw herself off Westgate Bridge, and a week later, her body washed up at Rye, I think. And I, with a couple of others, went to her funeral in one of the Anglican churches in the western suburbs. It was in the inter-semester break thing. And so the first week back in chapel, we arranged a time within the chapel service to remember her. But a number of students refused to come, including some in our pastoral group. Suicide was the ultimate sin. It's the cutting off from God, a rejection of God. There is no turning back. There's no mercy. And we should not remember that or honor her or recall her in chapel in any way. And I remember the, the depth of the pastoral conversations that we had uh, over some time. In her case, she was mentally ill. We knew that she was schizophrenic and was on medication. I think she was married. I don't think she had children. And she stopped taking medication. And that's what killed her, in my opinion. I don't think suicide is the unforgivable sin. Hers was perhaps a cry for help and too slow to hear. The tragedy for Judas, I think, is not necessarily his suicide, but his inability to understand guilt and to find repentance for his guilt. He certainly grieved his action. He was filled with remorse, it says in verse 3, but it's not the word repentance. It's remorse, a different thing. We might say it's a worldly grief. And worldly grief is more self-centered, self-pity, a bemoaning of oneself, but it doesn't deal with guilt. It's not repentance. One who's full of worldly grief is more likely to be crushed under its burden, I think. See, Judas had little concern for Jesus' plight, only about himself, really. And maybe tossing the coins back into the temple is a, an element of trying to make amends, but it's, it's a very small hint of that. And in despair, he hangs himself. For worldly grief leads to death. But godly grief seeks to repent and make amends. It turns to God, not in on oneself. It bewails sin and its consequences. Whereas worldly grief bewails only your own guilt or shame. 
Godly grief seeks God's forgiveness, whereas worldly grief remains ensnared by guilt. And godly grief seeks to make a new start, a change of life. Godly grief hides in despair. Wrote to the Corinthians, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation and brings no regret, but worldly grief produces death. And Judas's problem, I think, in the end is not his suicide, nor the unforgivable sin of betrayal, but his lack of repentance. This is tragic, but repentance is glorious. I guess there's warnings to us about from his suicide. We know of his greed mentioned elsewhere. Many Christians fall through the pursuit of greed. But what profit is it to gain the whole world and yet forfeit your soul? 30 pieces of silver is hardly the whole world, but his soul is forfeited. And there are plenty of Christians who betray Jesus with their greed, whether they're in a poor country or a wealthy country like ours. I think there's a warning to us to take repentance seriously, that God looks for proper repentance, not just a sort of worldly grief and remorse. Our culture, you see, doesn't get that. Our culture recognises worldly grief or remorse, bewails the fact that you get caught. We see that with endless procession of celebrities, former presidents, sports stars and so on, when they're caught doing something wrong, whether that's infidelity or greed or ball tampering or racism, they're expressions almost always of godly grief, of just remorse, but not godly grief or or, or, uh, repentance. They grieve maybe hurting somebody, grieve being caught, grieve the shame, but don't repent of the sin. And yet the Christian gospel is so profound by comparison. There is mercy and forgiveness where there is godly grief, where there is repentance of sin. It's extraordinary, I think, compared to our society's lack of understanding of this. Well, the Jewish leaders, of course, don't come out of this well either. It's okay to take the temple money or to give the temple money for the betrayal of Jesus, but they don't want it back. This is blood money. It's now dirty money. There's sort of confusion in them, I think, here. They're so intent on getting rid of this Jesus that they've lost their sort of balance of what is right and what is wrong. So Jesus, uh, Judas rather, is given money to betray Jesus so they can get rid of him. But when Judas throws the money back, they don't want this. The chief priests picked up the coins and said, it is against the law to put this into the treasury since it's blood money. Well, how confusing is that? How, what a sense of distorted values it betrays. Blood money. So what are they going to do with this blood money? Oh, well, we're going to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. So the blood money can be used to buy an unclean place for unclean people. 
basically, probably in the Hinnom Valley, right on the uh, edge of Jerusalem, a valley where the rubbish would be burned and the fire would just keep burning and burning. And uh, from Hinnom, the idea of Gehenna and hell and so on. There perhaps is where they, the, the place of burial for foreigners was purchased. The field of blood, Akuldama, it's called. To this day, Matthew says in verse 8. Now maybe as we read the last part of this passage, there might be encouragement to students here that even Matthew, did he make a mistake in his Old Testament paper? Because Matthew says in verse 9, then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. But he quotes Zechariah. Now, as an Old Testament teacher, I do not take this as an example of showing mercy to people doing Old Testament exams, let me tell you. So you can't throw this back in my face if I ever happen to teach you Old Testament. What's going on here, though? The quote is, they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field, as the Lord commanded me. But in Zechariah 11, not, not in Jeremiah, firstly, uh, Yahweh's shepherd is rejected, valued only at the price of a slave, and the money flung away and a relationship, covenant relationship broken. But in Jeremiah 19, there's also a mention of a potter's field. Uh, the potter is mentioned a couple of places in that chapter, mentions the Hinnom Valley, and it's all about the context of the apostasy and failure of the people of Israel in their worship of God. It talks about the blood of the innocent and the threat of God's punishment on them. And what Matthew's actually done is not, I think, make a mistake necessarily, but he's brought together two things. And what he's conveying is not just mere words, but as always, in my opinion, in the, in the New Testament, when the old is quoted, he's bringing in the whole context of those words. Now, if I say to you, Australians all let us rejoice, you don't think, oh, well, what are we rejoicing about? You think that's the national anthem. That is the opening line conveys, if you like, the whole and the whole of the context. And so what happens in the New Testament, and here is an example, is where the old is quoted, alluded to, or referred to. It's actually the context that is being brought in, not just sort of magic words plucked out of obscurity in the Old Testament. And so what Matthew is referring to here is that there is this pattern of rejection of God's servant, a pattern of apostasy of God's people. The place, Hinnom Valley, same place, Potter's Field, it's called in Jeremiah. And, of course, what Matthew is therefore alluding to is that this, this is all about the rejection of Jesus. And what he's also then showing, hinting at perhaps, is that even though this is a betrayal of human act, even though this is an act of injustice by people fixed on getting rid of Jesus, God's purposes are being fulfilled. The pattern of history is climaxing on the cross. Well, the suicide of Jesus, uh, Judas in this section is, I think, deliberately juxtaposed by Matthew in the context of Jesus' death, of course. Two deaths, a deliberate juxtaposition to help us see contrast. Both hanging in different ways on a tree, both tragic, 
but Judas takes his own life. Jesus is put together by put to death by others, although there's a sense in which, of course, he gives his own life. Judas clearly guilty, deserving death. Jesus clearly innocent, but put to death. For Judas, the wages of sin is death. The same for Jesus, but they're not his sins. Judas dies for his own sins. Jesus for others. The tragedy of Judas is that he did not know where to find forgiveness. He did not know repentance. And right at the same time, virtually, at least juxtaposed in Matthew's gospel, there is Jesus dying for the sins of the world. There is not just an innocent man dying, but there is the one dying who could have brought Judas the forgiveness he needed. And, of course, remember, we are also guilty of our sins, yet we go free, undeserved. So let us not fail to find grace in our time of need, knowing that the Lord wants all to come to repentance. Let's pray. Our God and Father, though innocent, we thank you that Jesus died for us willingly to take our sins. And we pray that you'll strengthen us to be repentant of our sins and have confidence in his merciful death for us. And help us heed the warnings of Judas's lack of repentance by coming to Jesus for mercy. Amen.